Ladies, gents, and germaphobes, I want to welcome you to season four of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. In 2019, I wrote a book to exercise the demons I'd picked up over a long decade of owning, brewing, and operating a brewery in Texas with my beautiful wife. That book is the same name as this podcast, and you really should pick it up on Amazon. Even brewers and bartenders can afford 18 bucks. What you're about to put in your ears is the only podcast that tells the truth in craft beer. I interview dead and dying breweries to learn what went wrong. I talk with breweries I think have a unique position in the marketplace to find out what they did right. I talk to distributors because they're a big part of the worst part of this industry. And I'm even sticking a microphone in the faces of cider, spirits, and mead makers. And yes, I do talk a lot of shit and piss off more than a few people in this industry. But I'm happy to be the crap beer pariah, trademark, because I'm here for one reason and one reason only, to make you better in your careers. My guests and I want happiness and financial success for each of you. We want you to avoid the mistakes we made. And since no one else has the stones to share how to do that with you, it has fallen to us. And trust me, we are up to the task. So sit back, listen in, and let us teach you how not to start a damn brewery. First few days were, you know, phenomenal. Getting beer out of the brewery pretty steadily. Almost immediately, the tasting room revenue just dropped right out. I mean, just boom. I'd like to introduce you to Bob Sylvester founder, brewer, and all-around badass from South Florida's Brasserie Saint somewhere. Bob started his brewery back in the early days of the last crap year explosion. You know, back in 08, when owning a brewery was still counterculture, hip, and a wee bit radical. He managed to create a unique and interesting lineup of beers that garnered him international acclaim and a loyal fan base of like-minded crap beer drinkers. They grew from meager beginnings into a beautifully imagined brewery with separate tasting room and every reason to expect growth and success. And then, just a few years ago, he watched it all crash down around him. First his tasting room, and then his worldwide distribution footprint. After trying his best to hold on, to refocus, and to refinance the business, he finally realized that it was beyond saving. So today we're gonna autopsy Bob's Brewery, Brasserie Saints somewhere, to find out what happened and what you can do differently in your career. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You got a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Bob, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. But most and most importantly, I want to thank you for giving a humongous beer-soaked buck about helping all of our guests be better in their careers today which is my way of saying welcome to the show. So welcome. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I, I be honest, I'm, I'm very excited to have you on the show. For me, you're one of the people that really was there in the beginning of what I consider kind of the, the first craft beer run or maybe second. You have a lot, lot to go through that I think you've seen and heard and dealt with. And then I'm really looking forward in the final segment to just kind of getting into more or less how fucked up the beer industry is now. So before we get there. <laughs> That's a whole nother show. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe. Maybe we'll do a second episode on that. But before we get there, I kind of want to know, like, what got you started? Who are you? Like, what, what do you like to do, you know? As far as beer, I, I kind of have two stories, you know, kind of a before and after. 
got into into the business really when no one else was was really doing it. 2006. Prior to that, I was I worked in retail for way too long and hated every second of it and really really needed to get out. Company I was working for 23 years with a, a little pause in the middle where I got disgusted, left, and came back was uh, let's say contracting. They closed my location and it was either you know take a pretty good severance package or move to New Jersey and uh, New Jersey was out of the question. So took the severance package and at that point I was started working part time knowing that something was going to happen. So started looking at like franchises, like a Quiznos franchise or (laughs) Subway, something. I just wanted to own a business. You know, my dad was all gung-ho. You know, he was going to help us out. So that kind of petered out because nothing really looked good or they were, you know, just way out of budget. And uh, I was at a beer festival in, uh, in Tampa. Again, Florida Brewers Guild Festival, which was probably one of the oldest in the Southeast, if not in the country. And... There was uh, this guy from Michigan pouring his beer. You know, I hadn't really heard of it. And uh, it was in these, you know, really clunky big green champagne bottles, which at that time wasn't too familiar with because Florida had just come out of a container size law that restricted anything other than 12 ounce, 16 ounce or 32 ounce. So Hmm. 750, 33 milliliter, anything from Belgium. You know, anything from Germany other than like backs, et cetera, we couldn't get in Florida. So I tried this beer and it and it just absolutely blew me away. And it was it was Jolly Pumpkin. And there's Ron Jeffries pouring it. And uh, you know, I I spoke to him in not great length, but you know, a bit. I was a little starstruck after trying the beer. I'd been homebrewing for a number of years prior to that and was pretty involved in the in the homebrewing community and you know, as BJCP judge and you know, everything that that comes along with that. So we're in a whole lot of, I don't want to say sour because Jolly Pumpkin's not sour per se, but not a whole lot of that type of beer around. Maybe a year went by and um, I had the idea, well, you know, I can continue to work, get another job in retail at this point, you know, or really do something out of the box. So kind of as an in-between deal, I thought, well, you know, let me get some friends together Everybody puts in like five grand. We start a brewery that does nothing but barrel-aged beer. We could all keep our day jobs. Everybody works a day or two <laughs> at uh, at the brewery. Everybody's happy. I had a similar you business know, model. That's that's how it sucks you <laughs> yeah. in. It's like, oh, we're never going to be there. It's easy. It's, yeah, it's a production you know, okay. yeah, kind of a kind of a co-op. You know, at that point, I think there were a thousand breweries in the u.s so it was it was the wild wild west there was there were no rules you could literally do anything so i I brought everybody together you know one was a professional brewer one was a a very seasoned beer bar restaurant owner another person was in beer distributing and another guy who's you know somebody i highly respect is a home brewer and at that time one of the few master uh, bjcp judges Got everybody together, threw out the idea, and it it kind of crashed and burned. <laughs> Nobody thought it was a good idea. <laughs> Who the hell's going to open up a brewery? What do you want to open a brewery for? That's stupid. You know, these are all by, people right? The, yeah, these are all people in, in the beer industry or, you know, peripheral. And I'm like, well, you know, all right, fuck this. I'm going to do it myself. 
how hard can it be? Right. Well, now you're in it at this point. You're excited and it's almost, yeah, it's, it's harder to walk away from it, I guess. I, I've definitely been there, but backtrack just a little bit. So was, was this less than a year after basically trying some of your first mixed culture beers from Ron? Was that kind of a new experience when you um, t- tasted them? Yeah, with, within a year or so. Because So I'm curious. So I think it's a, obviously in 05, it wasn't as normal for middle-aged white asshole star breweries to uh, you know get their creative itch scratched, but even more so to open up a mixed culture brewery. Those are just two kind of like completely out, outside the ballpark things. I'm just curious how you got to that point. Like, how did you, did you just like, fuck it, I'm just going to do whatever I want and this is what I'm into? Like, you're super excited about that style of beer at that point? That was 98% of it. There were two two breweries in the area, Tampa Brewing Company and Dunedin Brewing. And at that point in time, tasting rooms were not legal. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't you couldn't serve on premises. You could distribute or you could be a restaurant, like a brew pub. Again, I was just way burned out on retail. Last thing I wanted to do was open a <laughs> restaurant. Both of those breweries were, as were almost all breweries at that point, you know, doing pale ale, IPA, stout, porter, maybe one fruit beer. You know, everybody was doing kind of the same thing with a few exceptions, you know, around the country. The only U.S. brewery that I knew that was doing 100% mixed firm stuff was Jolly Pumpkin. By this time, I had just become a nuisance to Ron, you know, just calling him incessantly, asking him, you know, all kinds of questions to get the brewery off the ground. And he, at that point, he's probably thinking, you know, who, who is this asshole? Why is he bothering me? Because at that time, they were probably at 250 barrels a year you know they were still tiny Mm -hmm. um came to find out the reason they were in florida and in the tampa bay area in particular was his in-laws live in the saint pete area so they uh start distributing here as a as a way to you know write off some some trips to to see the folks yeah right so you know a little time goes by and again i have no idea what i'm doing nobody to fall back on you know except for for ron and i didn't want to bug him too much so i'm scouring the what was you know the internet in those days looking for equipment you know used equipment was almost non-existent because breweries weren't closing they were Mm -hmm. opening at that point I didn't have a whole lot of capital. You know, we were just running off of cashed in 401k severance package. My dad was helping us out a little bit with it because, you know, he was real excited to, about us getting a business going. But still, we were talking 20, 30, you know, $50,000 total. So I, I did find some used equipment from a brewery in Colorado. The name of the place was uh, Only the Best Brewing. <laughs> and he, he had been brewing on it for 10, 12 years, something like that. So this was equipment from the dawn of craft brewing. Mm-hmm. Paid seven grand for the whole thing. Mash ton, kettle, really? one fermenter. There was like a hot liquor tank, you know, a couple other pieces, you know, had it shipped. I remember the day the equipment arrived, driver opens the back of the truck and I look in the back and I'm like, fuck, stuff's big. <laughs> what, no plan to get it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, not not just that. It's like it's you know it's scary because you know I had no idea what to do, how to do it, mm-hmm. how I was going to work this stuff. So we got it unloaded. We had already rented a place, and that that was a whole nother story. We <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about that later. We found a place in Tarpon Springs in a brand new little industrial complex. Got everything unloaded. 
got it in place and I'm staring at it and I'm still like, I, you know, okay, now what? Just, you know, pieced it together like a giant homebrew setup. And that's how it worked for 15 years. Hmm. Did you ever have anyone kind of come in and consult to teach you any sort of the nuts and bolts of how that worked? No, <laughs> it was all trial and error. Again, I, you know, I'd been homebrewing for, I don't know, 10, 12, 14 years. So I, you know, I knew how to brew mm-hmm. and I just, I kind of put this together like a big homebrew system. And, and I, I, you know, consultants, I didn't even think that was a thing then, you know, as far as a small brewery, I don't it think there were any Yeah. other than, you know, somebody to, you know, walk you through buying equipment for two, three, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000. You know, I'm, I'm buying bits and pieces from, you know, winery tank manufacturers and, you know, just getting stuff from all over the place. A friend of mine worked for a Marine pump company. They did, you know, sump pumps, giant pumps for ships. And he hooked me up with a sanitary stainless flexible impeller pump that was just the motor and the controller. So, <laughs> you know, the, the thing weighed 60 or 80 pounds. I'm like, well, you know, I can't just leave it sitting in the floor. So, of course, in my head, logical thing to do is stick it on a skateboard, had a, a, a flagpole mount added to the back and stuck a broom handle in it. And that's how I moved the thing around for years. And that, that kind of became famous on its own. Since it was so early on, uh, a few a few things we did are kind of unheard of these days. We attended a beer festival as, as St. Somewhere. I ended up talking to the specialty grain guy from uh, Cargill. And at that time, they really didn't have many, if any, craft breweries in their you know portfolio. So I told him about what I was doing. He was very interested. I was using strictly Dingman's malt that I was buying from a reseller in Tampa that supplied, you know, a lot of the Southeast, but they were selling and closing. He got me probably Cargill's first craft brewery account, got me 45 days, which was kind of crazy. I mean, try to get 45 days now on on anything. We ended up with, you know, access to some some crazy stuff. Same thing with with hops. Uh, Hop Union was just about the only source in those days. Then that kind of morphed into uh, just getting contacts with, you know, some hop growers themselves and then Willamette Valley hops and eventually with, you know, some of the, the European hop sellers and growers that thought it was, you know, funny to sell the city in Florida hops. That's uh, the, you know, genesis of St. Somewhere. So at this point, did you were you operating with a business plan? Did you have any like output targets or revenue goals that at, at all? No, I'd be surprised if you oh. said yes. But I was curious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only because there was, I don't think you could have done a business plan at at that point because there you had no comparables. You know what? Right. What were the comparables? What you know? So what was your plan to get to market? Was it mostly to distribute locally? Was it? tap room or what did so you picked a model that couldn't have a tap room is that what you're saying the production model correct yeah because in those days you you know it was it was not legal in florida my first thinking was well all along i'm still you know now i'm working a full-time job again just because you know we've 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 blown everything all our savings are dumped into this so i needed some income so now i'm I'm back in retail you know working full-time and trying to get this business off the ground 
you know, without going into a whole lot of debt. I don't think anybody would have lent us anything at that point anyway, because it was such a harebrained scheme with no business plan, no direction, just, I want to brew beer and I want to do this. Well, we'll so, get to that at the end, but even in 2022, I think with a business plan, I'm not sure it's not <laughs> any left harebrained today, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, my thinking was craft beer was just starting to take off and I would, you know, supply Florida with Saison and, and they would be thrilled with it and you know i'd be rich and that'd be the end of it you know new glarus but florida Mm -hmm. through you know a lot of channels i became friends before this with uh people that owned a craft distributorship in florida uh microman distributing they've since sold and, and closed they were very excited about picking us up because you know we were kind of an anomaly nationwide much less in florida so they picked us up and Hindsight did the best they could, which was nowhere near what we needed. And they covered the entire state, which, you, you know. Do you, do you recall, like, and this is a long time ago, but like today, the terms are typically 30%. Was it kind of the same back then? Uh, it was a little lower. I, I think they're, yeah, they were, they were tacking on about, about 18 to 20. Mm-hmm. As I was saying, they were, they covered the whole state. I just kind of pulled a, retail price out of my ass then work backwards you know to the to the wholesale price or price to to distro Mm -hmm. just from looking at you know stuff on the shelf by then you know a few of the 750s managed to get into into florida again all through microman you know dupont jolly pumpkin was there and i i wanted to be i didn't want to be at the bottom i didn't want to be at the top either and i knew from working 100 years in retail that you don't want to be in the middle either because that's where you get lost. You either want to be the cheapest, mm-hmm. the highest end, or as close to one of those as you can. So we kind of stayed mid-high end as far as pricing. And it worked because bottles were expensive. We corked and caged everything. Labels were expensive. We, you know, to the final day of St. Somewhere, we spent way too much on labels more than I think anybody else I knew in the industry, but that was, you know, that was part of our deal. Part of your marketing um, for sure. Yeah. You know, our first shipment out, they picked up, I think, 80 cases. We had two beers at the time, so 40 cases of each. For the first week or two, I'm like pacing the floor, waiting, you know, to see some of this hit the shelves. You know, people that I knew in the industry, of course, picked it up pretty quick. You know, I'm waiting for that reorder, waiting for the reorder, waiting for the reorder. Went and visited the distributor and, you know, they're they're very excited and, you know, take me back. And, you know, I look at the pallets and there's like 15 cases missing from each one. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I am, I am so screwed. <laughs> so kind of hit the road with them and, and do the, you know, the ride-alongs. and All over the you state know, or do you focus on certain areas? Mostly Central Florida, because that's, you know, where I was and really couldn't afford to go to the panhandle for two weeks. And the majority of the beer market anyway was in the Tampa Bay area, Orlando, and, you know, all that was within hour or two drive from, from home. Did, you know, as many festivals, events, uh, I poured at wine festivals, wine tastings, anything I could get my hands on to, to give away free beer. I even poured at a garden club fundraiser in Tarpon Springs. <laughs> As, as the only alcohol product poured. And that was interesting. <laughs> but yeah, I was, you know, willing to do whatever it took at that point without having to, you know, spend any money, which we just didn't have. 
figured out, you know, real quick that we needed to expand beyond Florida to just survive, much less, you know, make any money. Was reception slow? Like when you went to these events and when you went to samplings at different bars and restaurants, I'm asking you to get. So what was it? 10% that would buy it? Was there a negativity towards the product itself or was it just craft beer wasn't ready? I'm just curious what, what you think might have been part of the reason for your struggle early on. I think it was just such an anomaly. You know, the the 750, you know, was looked at as, oh my God, I can't drink that many, that much beer. And I'm like, well, you realize that's just two 12 ounce serving. You're going to a beer bar, you're drinking two beers or more, depending on, on the ABV. I think it was just, you know, it was a little intimidating Nobody knew what the hell Saison or Farmhouse Ale was or, you know, could be, or it, it was, again, we we're trying to break new ground, which was tough, you know, with no financial backing, which made it even harder. Were you exclusively on bottles at this time or were there kegs too? Yeah, no, just bottles. At that point, I was determined to just do 750s period, mainly because MicroStar wasn't around yet and you either had to buy kegs or get creative somehow. I think keg leasing was just starting to raise its head, but then you had to have a keg washer and, right. you know, chemicals and somebody to do it. And, you know, it was a, literally a one-man operation. About that time where I was feeling really distraught, like, what the hell am I going to do? I got a call from a distributor in Philadelphia that was curious about us because they, they were a Greek family and Tarpon Springs, where the brewery was located, is one of the biggest Greek communities in the country. The family had a condo near there. They decided to pick us up just because it would be fun to have, you know, a beer from Tarpon Springs. Not they didn't want a Saison or Farmhouse Ale or 750. They just thought it would yeah. be cool. They're Greek, Greek family. Let's let's get a beer from Tarpon. <laughs> At that point, you know, I didn't realize that. And, you know, I was like flattered and flabbergasted. Oh, my God, you know, Philly's such a great beer market, especially for this kind of product. You know, I just I jumped on it. I'm like, yeah, whatever you want, whatever you want to do, well, you know, we'll do. So we sent them uh, some beer. It, it did really well in Philadelphia. I mean, we were sending them at that point just about as, as much beer as I could make, you know, by myself. <laughs> and at that time, we had two fermenters. Two uh, seven-barrel fermenters, that was it. And the turn on a fermenter was about two months. So I wanted, you know, I wanted the, the breath to come out. I, I set myself up for failure from, <laughs> from the get-go. So you're, you're <laughs> roughly getting like, what, 75, 80 cases out of each bat. Takes about two months to do. Is that where you're kind of around? Uh, yes. We're 80, we got 84 cases exactly out of out of each batch. Okay. Or out of each, you know, fermenter. So double that in six to eight weeks. That was tough. It started to, you know, get a, a bit of a name in, in Philadelphia. And then I got a call from uh, Union Distributing in New York, their huge distributor for the five boroughs in New York. They had gotten a hold of a couple of our bottles and were, you know, pretty impressed. I'm like, yeah, at this point, I couldn't even. I couldn't fill Bella Vista's orders, but I'm like, yeah, let's do it. I'll send you some beer. So, um, you know, they called me back a few days later and said, yeah, okay, we put together a purchase order. We're going to start with eight pallets and then, uh, you know, we'll see how that moves and go from there. Eight and pallets. at that point, you know, my asshole became the size of a pin because to produce eight pallets would take me four, five, six months. 
and <laughs> I didn't, I didn't say no. I'm like, hmm. okay, you got it. So I hung up the phone and, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah. yeah shit myself, <laughs> you know, called, uh, Ann, my wife, I'm like, they want eight pallets. She's like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> we need to figure it out. Still working a full-time job. Eventually I ended up, I think sending them the, the most we could do was like two pallets. As soon as it hit the ground, it was gone. That was kind of the launch pad, you know, for St. Somewhere. I mean, we, we never got huge, but uh, we were one of the first, if not the first craft beers at uh, Momofuku. They got us into just, you know, some crazy spots in and around New York that, you know, I would have never dreamt of, of you know, having our beer poured. It, kind of started snowballing from there we did at that point decide well we've got to expand somehow so we uh we did um take out a loan bought more fermenters got a glycol chiller upgraded you know added another pump so we're not relying on the skateboard pump so started uh cranking out more beer to fill the orders but we never really caught up did florida start to pick up during the same time so they were no. doing better than really no, never, never really did. Right around then, like 2008, 2009, maybe at the latest, you know, the whole Florida Vice thing kicked in and that's, you know, that's all anybody in Florida wanted, you know, heavily fruit syruped, you know, Berliners. Mm-hmm. Again, yeah, you know, you have to remember the, the Florida market was, you know, in its infancy. I mean, their craft beer was was pretty much unheard of. Uh, other than just two or three spots around around the state. Nobody had even heard of any Belgian beer prior to 2001, 2002, because it, it was just, it was illegal. You couldn't get it. Oh, sure. So it never, never really materialized Florida. I, I got to the point where I got so aggravated that I actually just dropped out of Florida. I, I just, I just stopped distributing in Florida. I'm like, you know, screw it. Put them all to eat shit, huh? I like it. <laughs> Pretty much. And it, it was, I mean, it broke my heart because Ann and I are both, you know, Florida natives. Her family goes back five generations. We built the brand, the marketing, the labels, everything, you know, even the name. We built it around Florida. I mean, the, the labels came straight out of the Florida archives. We used, you know, yeah, they don't grow barley or hops in Florida, but we tried to use indigenous Florida ingredients, palmetto berry. We would go out and, you know, foraging now is a a big buzzword, but, you know, we just thought we were going out picking shit. So we we would forage, you know, elderflowers, orange blossoms, you know, out of the groves. You know, we used Florida ingredients and, and Florida really didn't care. So you cut them off. I like it. Yeah. So obviously you had to then expand around the country and I want to hear more about that, but let's take a very quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk about one, if Florida ever gets its beer back from St. Somewhere, but then two, how that expansion work. We'll be right back. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president. Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers. Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, they've got you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. 
now serving 12 states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at Brewery Direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. All right, so welcome back. I do realize, Bob, I forgot to ask you a question that I really wanted to find out. And that is, you mentioned that Saint Somewhere was a Florida-inspired name. In what way? What exactly does Saint Somewhere mean? It's from a line out of a uh, Jimmy Buffett song, uh, the song Boat Drinks. You know, it's about he and his buddies are in a cabin in the middle of a snowstorm watching a hockey game. And he gets fed up and shoots a few holes in his freezer and decides he wants to fly to Saint Somewhere. Interesting. Okay. Uh, you can't copyright a phrase in a song, but you can copyright the title and, you know, the, the music. So it was fair game. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. So at this point, we aren't selling to Florida anymore. We're killing it in New York, doing really well in Philly. Just it expanded. And so we also kind of glossed over that. So your initial investment was somewhere around 50K. That was the expansion about that, double that, quadruple that. Was it, how much did you spend to, to kind of get bigger? Probably, yeah, we doubled it because of okay. the, you know, the, the, the equipment, we didn't really take out a loan. We, well, I mean, it kind of was, I forgot the name of the company. It was guys that, you know, would finance equipment. Yeah. So kind of like you, leasing the equipment. Yeah. So you, you know, lease to own kind of thing. So you, mm-hmm. you tell them what you want. They buy it, ship it to you, uh, and then you pay them, you know, monthly until it's paid off or until the, you know, your lease expires. But we, you know, I wanted to own the equipment and not have to deal with it after that. So that was, you know, it was probably around, around 50,000. I use that same structure on my first three fitness centers, actually. Just easy way to get equipment. As long as it was equipment and had collateral on it, they were, they were easy to work with for sure. Yeah. Expensive, but easy to work with. Yeah. And, uh, you know, rather than trying to go to a bank loan and having to explain your <laughs> your lack of receipts right. and, and bottom line. So at this point, you've you've kind of got a, a little more legitimate physical plant, got enough tank that you can turn beer out quicker. What did you do first? Were you still trying to keep up with existing or did you have more distributors reaching out to you? Yeah, right at that point. God knows why, because I couldn't keep up anyway. You know, my head got a little big and I decided, you know, to contact Shelton Brothers. So we talked a bit, met up, you know, shared the beer. And they're like, at that point, their only U.S. brand, again, was was Jolly Pumpkin. Ron and I have become friends since. But at that point, I'm like, uh, you know, you know, I'm, I'm riding on the guy's coattails, but, you know, whatever it takes. So Shelton decided, yeah, okay, we'll pick you up. That really opened up uh, a lot of doors for the brand and me personally, because now I'm in the company of, you know, the greatest breweries in the world, as far as, you know, I was concerned. Thierry, De La Seine, Jolly Pumpkin, Cantillon, Dre Fontenay, any fantastic Belgian brewery you could think of was under the, you know, the Shelton umbrella. So now all of a sudden I'm, you know, I'm pouring beer at the Shelton Brothers Fest, you know, next to all of my heroes and becoming friends. And it was, you know, it was all kind of surreal at the beginning. And so logistically, for people that don't know, they're they're effectively an importer. So what they would do, or at least maybe they didn't do it back then, but like I know towards the end, they actually had in a warehouse and they would, you would just ship beer to the warehouse and then they would effectively ship it all over the country for you. Or did you go direct? No, they they would they'd pick the beer up, go to the warehouse, and then the distributors would would pick up from there. 
and they also shipped our beer overseas. We were in, you know, we were in Iceland. My my, my daughter and son-in-law, just on a whim, they, they like to travel to places that aren't normally traveled. They were in Iceland. And at a uh, hotel bar, uh, my daughter's name is Caitlin, and I named a beer after her, Caitlin. So she <laughs> looks up, and they have Caitlin on tap. So she's like, "I'm sitting in Iceland, and you know your beer's here." <laughs> so uh, it, you know, it was it was it was you know more more fun than anything else seeing stuff like that. Well, I imagine the scale had to go up fairly dramatically too. So they were able to buy. Were you then able to sell eight pallets at a time by this point because you had more equipment? By then, yeah. Yeah, we were rolling along pretty well. Shelton Brothers was rolling along real well then, too. And they were killing and, it in the early 10s, for sure. Yeah, still sending beer to, to Philadelphia, still sending beer to uh, to Union in New York, which kind of was in conflict to Shelton. Dan was always up my ass about trying to get rid of those two so he could take over, you know, and just be Shelton Brothers Saint somewhere for the whole country rather than blocking out you know, basically two of the two of the biggest markets. I, I never really pursued it to any to any extent. And and so at some point in here too, you also started doing kegs? Pretty much out of necessity. I mean I I wasn't real crazy about doing draft because, you know, the the style of beer we were doing, it doesn't lend itself as well to draft as uh as bottles. Mm-hmm. But, you know, finally bit the bullet still one-man operation well except for bottling bottling days uh we started hiring uh temp labor <laughs> it was funny after three or four bottling sessions the temp agency you know said well you know we got people fighting over this i'm like <laughs> well that's cool because you know it's either hang out and bottle beer or they're help- helping you know some roofing contractor in the you know in the heat of august <laughs> they started sending you know their their best people worked out for a while and then we started getting people coming in and volunteering man we'd love to help you do this it looks fun so we eventually just kind of replaced the the temps with volunteers but they now that's a big no-no in the industry but they <laughs> were very well compensated let's say for two hours work they left with half a case of beer so six 12 ounce bottles lunch and it wasn't you know sandwiches cut up we fed them well open bar at the end of the day you know here are the taps here's a cup have at it just you know be reasonable so they were volunteers but they were compensation probably added up to about 110 dollars each and depending how much they could drink at the end but yeah (laughs) yeah it might have been cheaper just to pay them (laughs) yeah i mean the bottles retail then were 10 11 bucks so that was a good perk yeah what was your lineup like? Like overall, did you sort of go from the Cantheon model of sticking to sort of, or I guess even Dre Fontana, like sort of core stuff that you do, like uh, like the Lambic Saison that came out that always was the same, and then you fruited later or added spice and flavorings, or, or did you have a hazy IPA? What 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 were you doing? What were you making at this time? Never, uh, really, never strayed away from farmhouse ales. Had a handful handful meaning two or three base recipes so i had let's call one the you know light recipe and one the dark recipe and then kind of riffed off of those three core brands so saison athene lectio divina and pay de soleil were were my core brands and then i did just a a bunch of one-offs actually other than those three everything was a one-off and collaborations and did everything still take roughly six to eight weeks to make, or were you having stuff take longer, shorter? I was able to 
to shorten the time between brew day and out the door, not a whole lot, but I was, you know, I was able to, to turn four or five weeks and that's, you know, fermentation, bottling, bottle condition, ready to go. Built in a little time from the brewery to distributor to to the shelf. So when it hit the shelf, it was peak. Well, not peak, but, you know, ready to go rather than waiting for <laughs> perfect time to go and then shipping it out. So did you have to make a schedule to try to hit all these orders that was that were happening? Or did you just try to fill every tank, drain every tank at once, and then ship larger orders to Shelton. Was that What was your strategy in that way? Kind of panic brewing. <laughs> it was <laughs> just, I was just trying to, there really was no schedule other than, other than we were way behind if we had a schedule, just trying to, trying to move the beer as, as, as quickly as possible. You know, we still didn't want to take on any partners. Cash flow was still, you know, okay, but again, bottles, labels, corks, cage. We were using one-way kegs from the beginning mm-hmm. um, because I, you know, I didn't want to put fifteen, twenty thousand dollars into a keg washer and then have to buy kegs. And then, you know, I'm like, we're shipping stuff all over the country, all over the world. One-way kegs are the way to go. And yeah, we we're paying like fifteen bucks a keg, so we kind of built seven dollars into the price. Then we'd eat seven because. You know, that that's kind of the cost of, of dealing with stainless kegs are gonna run you about seven dollars or more in the life of it. So it was it was kind of a win win situation. Kegs were all keg conditioned, which was uh there was a little, you know, growth phase or learning curve on that one. Uh we took back quite a few kegs in the beginning, which would hurt. You know, you you'd have distributor, you know, pick up two thousand dollars worth of uh worth of kegs and and drop off uh thirty five hundred dollars worth of bad returns yeah that's tough um, i've had that happen yeah too. took a while to figure that out because uh, you know i'm dealing with with uh, wild yeast and keg conditioning you know it took six or eight months to get that in line and then you know then it was fine what were the issues you were having off flavors or just mostly that like yeast sediment just way over carbed Mm. Yeah, way, way over carb to the point where the, uh, you know, the valves were failing, you know, really? just, yeah, you know, geysers in the warehouse and just blowing the whole top off of, off of the plastic kegs or, you, you know, getting, uh, you were dosing them separately or is it the, the CO2 that you had in the bottle was so high that it just didn't work in the keg? Kind of both. I originally started, uh, dosing the kegs the same as the bottles, just out of ignorance or laziness. You know, finally landed on. Well, you know, I've got, <laughs> I've got to dose the kegs, two thirds the 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 rate of uh, the bottles to get them, you know, to pour. So that way, yeah, it wouldn't be overdone. Okay. Yeah. Did you have any great memories at this time of like you got to go visit visit somewhere amazing? Uh, were you doing samplings at grocery stores in Great Falls, Montana, or was there something cooler and better to remember than that? Wasn't traveling a whole bit, just you know, for economic reasons. We still had a you know, full time we... job. It's still had my full-time job up until I think probably 2011 or 12. Yeah, probably my my you know my best and and you know most fun memories revolve around the uh, the Shelton Brothers festivals. You know, as as a brewer attending them were just insane. I always dragged uh, my three buddies uh, Blake, Ryan, and uh, and JB along, and uh, you know we all kind of got a reputation as the I don't want to say bad boys but we were you know always getting in trouble from (laughs) 
from Christian and Jordan to Shelton Brothers. They, okay, you you don't have to do that anymore. I'm like, all right. But it was, yeah, it was a blast. And it just, you know, networking, hanging out with, again, all of my, you know, my heroes, uh, which, you know, led me to being able to do collaborations with, you know, Thierry, De La Seine, Duranka, Phantom. You know, it was, it was, uh, for me, it's perfect. Couldn't have been any better. Well, do you remember, and I was a lot of years in there, but like around that 11, 12, like kind of what your output was at all? Or revenue maybe? We, from uh, now, but... Not, you know, not a whole lot. We were uh, about, at that point, about 350 barrels. You've got beer all over the world. Uh, and it was 350 yeah, barrels. Yeah, yeah. 350, which, which was funny because after, uh, after, after Cigar City opened, you know, they had their lawyers look into it and they found a loophole in Florida law where you could serve beer if it benefited tourism. So that mm. loophole was in there for Bush Gardens in Tampa. Of so course. they could produce the beer and have the hospitality house. They're like, okay, we're going to benefit tourism. And at that point, breweries started opening tasting rooms and there were really no legal challenges because, you know, what can they say? The legislation passed this to pander to Anheuser-Busch. So they, they kind of let it slide. And uh, at that time, we decided, let's, you know, we're not going to do a tasting room, but let's say Thursday and Friday, we'll do tastings, charge X amount. Well, we couldn't couldn't get a retail license because of where we were and the way it was set up. But legally, we could charge you $10, sell you a glass for 10 bucks, and then give you free beer. We started doing that. We would, you know, sell a glass and in the glass were three tickets for three fills on uh, the 10 ounce glass. And that kind of took on a life of its own and became semi-famous on its own because there's this little warehouse brewery. And on uh, Thursday and Fridays, we'd put a pop-up outside the door and a table and chairs. And we were having people from all over the world stop it in, in a par- warehouse parking lot, which was was kind of fun. That was back when you could do that. Even in fact, as we didn't get the ability to do tasting rooms until 13, I think, somewhere around there, maybe even 14. So, but I'm pretty sure it was 13, but a lot of the breweries had already built their facility without the tasting room and didn't have the room for it. And so whenever they did, the guys that had been open before, they ended up with kind of like the warehouse thing. And then the guys who were opening up in 14, 15, she built these beautiful tasting rooms. And so you just had this huge kind of just disconnect around the industry of like the warehouse guys and then the beautiful tasting room guys. And so uh, <laughs> it made it, made it tough to compete for sure. Yeah. And that's, so, that's kind of our, our, the second half of St. Somewhere, let's say. <laughs> what year do you think that the second half began and the first half um, ended? 2014, 15, after seeing other breweries open, hitting the ground with tasting rooms and uh, not even distributing, but doing very well with just the tasting room and tasting room volume, you know, because rather than giving your beer away, you're you're keeping that the, the retail dollar. Six seven dollars a pint, as opposed to you know a dollar fifty a pint out the door to distro. Started looking around at that point. Also, you know, started looking into you know where we're we gonna come up with this money to expand the tasting room. I mean, yeah. Well, we at that point we would have to move. Ah, okay. Uh, well, we we would definitely have else. to have a separate facility for the tasting room because you still couldn't and, get a retail license where you were. Correct. 
the facility we were in, you know, we were, we were releasing it and it was, you know, it was nothing. It was, we were paying like eight or 900 bucks a month, but it, um, you know, it was, <laughs> it was hot for one. Sweltering hot. I worked from 2006 until we moved in 2016 with no floor drains. Hmm. So everything, uh, you know, I, I had rigs to pump into a utility sink or pump out the door into, you know, into a drain. And, you know, it was, it was not real fun. I mean, it added, you know, an hour or two onto the end of each brew day, just to get things cleaned up and you know you, you're constantly mopping and yeah don't ever open a brewery no matter how small without, without floor drains <laughs> again you know ass. 2006 yeah. you know yeah yeah we don't need a floor drain we can work around it uh and the landlord wouldn't wouldn't allow it anyway or we would have had it done years prior we had to have a separate facility looked everywhere and you know kind of a no-brainer was oh let's stay in tarpon springs because we've kind of become identified with Tarpon Springs to the point where, you know, like Jester King and Austin are kind of go together. Mm-hmm. Saint somewhere in Tarpon Springs kind of went together. I mean, it, you know, not that we put them on the map, but we definitely put Tarpon on, on the beer map. So we're like, man, let's stay in Tarpon Springs. So looked, took us well over a year, year and a half to, to find a place. And I lucked out and found this really cool old, house that was right on the on the main drag in tarpon and it was uh built 1912 the last use was a doctor's office so it was you know it was commercial but it had been vacant for eight years eight eight years yeah just sitting vacant nothing happening really you know not a great looking building it was painted pepto-bismol pink it was it was it was weird then right behind that there was an alleyway and there was another building owned by the city that the city had owned it since uh, 1950 something. And they had used it for everything from, you know, an accounting office to just storage of the Christmas supplies to nothing. It was just city owned it and it just sat there. So we finagled a deal to buy both of these buildings. The one we brought bought from the city, we paid practically nothing and then uh, the other one for what for what we sold it we paid practically nothing got an sba loan also did a little uh you know kickstarter thing because the farther we got into the sba loan the more money they wanted down and that sure. money, that, that amount kept going and it was like oh, you know we can do it sixty-five thousand down i'm like if i had sixty-five thousand sitting around i wouldn't be coming to you yeah. So we did we did a Kickstarter thing. We were able to, you know, make up the difference. Got the SBA loan by the just the skin of our teeth. I think even our our loan guy was kind of surprised. Kind of so, backpedal a little bit. You know, the SBA wants a wants a business plan. <laughs> we were they need a business plan. They don't yeah, do it without us. Yeah, yeah, they require a business plan. You know, I I had zero, you know, experience writing a business plan. And, you know, I didn't want to lean on anyone else. And, you know, I heard horror stories. Oh, I've been, we've been writing our business plan for three years and it's almost complete. So I'm like, oh, screw it. I found a company that you pay them actually a pretty decent amount of money. They do all the research and they write a business plan specific to you. You review it, you submit it. If you don't get an SBA loan, 
you know, they don't keep the money. So I'm like, hmm. all right, that's a no brainer. Money well spent. I mean, it was like 1500 bucks, but even the underwriter got a hold of me and said, wow, this is the best, best business plan we've ever seen. I'm like, yeah, thank you. You know, she didn't know. Worked really hard on that one. I she didn't know we it. hired somebody, but it really was. It was very detailed, and they went into just did a lot, a ton of market research, and uh, you know, it was it was a great business plan. So we got the loan. Then, just out of sheer dumb luck, we stumbled into one of the best contractors in in the country, uh, Cocalacus. They build malls, they build parking garages, they built, I think it's the dormitories for uh, either West Point or Annapolis. They thought it would be, you know, cute, I guess, to, to help out somebody local. <laughs> so we, we got them on board and uh, it was great because the, all of the subcontractors they hired were just scared shitless of them and would do, you know, they were they were killing themselves to get the contracts because they wanted to be associated with the contractor. I know More opportunity the, yeah, yeah. in the future. I know the plumber and the electricians, you know, lost their ass on this deal because they, you know, once once they started getting into the walls, it was knob and tube wiring, you know, from the original wiring from 1912, which all had to come out. The plumbing was a nightmare, all had to be replaced, and they had way underbid it. But uh, my GC held them to it and said, no, you signed on to this. This is what you're going to do or we're hmm. going to sue you. Yeah, we ended up with just, you know, fantastic, beautiful build-outs, spent uh, a lot of money on fixtures, bar, uh, the back bar. You know, I wish I had pictures. Somebody could go on to, you know, St. Somewhere's uh, Facebook page and, and see some of the old pictures of the, of the tasting room. Uh, the back bar, we found an antique Art Nouveau bar from France, period correct, from the 1920s. Got that. The front bar was repurposed from the Bellevue Biltmore, which was this huge estate resort in Clearwater that had just been torn down because it was rotten and falling apart. But uh, at the time, it was the largest wooden structure in the U.S. This really neat thing. And so we, you know, we tried to repurpose stuff from from the area. We got uh, these really cool old chandeliers from uh, from the, the Biltmore. Made it look like an old Belgian beer bar, you know, like you're walking into, you know, Degar or, you know, one, one of those, it was just, you know, small tables, chairs, there was a bar, but you know, only a few seats at the bar, real nice wraparound patio, you know, covered patio, ceiling fans had, uh, you know, some chairs out in front really looked great. Everybody loved it. Built the brewery out in the, the building we bought from the city. With floor drains, of course. Hey, at the win. <laughs> the, the one big uh, requirement. But it had a little office in the front. And into the SBA loan, we built in, you know, some more equipment and improvements on the equipment we had. You know, like an automated corker, uh, the wire cage twister, you know, just some things where we could go from, you know, eight people down to three and still have the same output. I had uh, kind of a, an, <laughs> let's say an, an unpaid intern. It was, you know, a good friend of mine who now uh, owns uh, Birds Fly South in uh, South Carolina. Sean hit me up at a beer fest one time. I, you know, didn't know who he was. And he's like, uh, you know, I'd love to help you out in the brewery. I love your stuff. You know, I'm like, 
I don't need anybody. I, I, you know, I didn't want anybody at that time. I, you know, was doing my own thing, coming and going when I wanted. And uh, I said, well, you know, on brew days, I start, you know, at 6 a.m., which is, you know, it's 530 or 6, kind of early. He's like, well, I'm in the military. So, you know, that's nothing. I can be there. I'm like, oh, okay. So, <laughs> you know, every, every every obstacle I threw at him, you know, he was knocking it down. And, uh, you know, finally, I'm like, all right, come on in. Yeah, Sean was my uh, assistant brewer for four years or so. After uh, after Sean left, moved to North or South Carolina and opened Birds Fly South. Then I had Jake Miller, who came from Prairie and did uh, you know did a little wood shedding uh, for six months at Saint Somewhere, and then went on uh, and opened Heirloom Rustic Ales in uh, Oklahoma. So I had uh, you know I've had a lot of good help after we you know kind of in in the transition and then after we uh, opened the the newer facility. Well, I want to hear a little bit more about the finances of the newer brewery and kind of how that worked on the growth side of it. But uh, let me go take a quick run around the block. I'll be right back and we'll talk about that. All right. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer up your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. Are you thinking about paying retail for your brewery equipment? Well, since we all came and learned how to make good decisions, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge. So pay close attention. BrewBids is the only badass online marketplace to buy and sell new and used equipment. Maybe you're in the market to buy because you learned how to open a brewery the right way and know that overspending can be fatal. Maybe you're expanding up or down and you know that stainless steel lasts forever, so it's really even better than new. Or maybe you're a guest of the show and you need a place to liquidate all your brewery equipment before the bank comes in and takes it. Doesn't matter. Each of you should be logging on to brewbids.com right now, creating your account, and connecting with the equipment you need. Get smart, get brewbids, and get busy making beer. All right, so thanks for sticking with us. Um, So at this point, you're growing, you're getting bigger, you're getting more expanded around the world, and you've got this bigger facility. You went from 900 bucks a month rent to probably what in that um, SBA loan? Five, 6,000 maybe? <laughs> All 10? told uh, about 7,500 right. overnight. So, yeah. So clearly you had to make more beer to pay for it. You had to sell more beer to pay for it. And you you had a business plan. Did you use the business plan? <laughs> yes. This is where things started kind of falling apart. We had the brewery up and running before the tasting room. Now, the tasting room also had a second floor that we were going to rent out. Uh, there were a couple of rooms. It, it was a full apartment with a kitchen, bathroom, cool two idea. bedrooms to yeah. rent it out like Airbnb. You'd either rent the whole thing, you rent one room. You know, we spent a bunch of money on a new stairway out the back. So there was a separate entrance, fought tooth and nail with the fire inspector and everybody to get all this done and approved ultimately never never opened the you know the upstairs just because we didn't have the funds to finish it 
but to, to back up a little bit, you know, we're, we're cranking beer out of the brewery. You know, I'm having the same little events on the occasional Thursday and Friday, which are, you know, going great. Everybody's having a good time. We're cranking out a bunch of beer. Did you switch to a paid per uh, drink model or were you still doing the $20 or $10 buy a glass? No, still doing the $10 because the yeah. brewery itself was not licensed to, you know, for retail. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tasting room was, but we weren't quite open at that point. So then, boom, tasting rooms open. You know, first time I've really had to have a staff. Well, I had Jake at that point who was paid. Jake was okay, Jake was the brewer. He was also the let's say the you know tap room manager. So he was he was working both sides. The business plan worked to where the tasting room would cover the majority of our expenses. Mm-hmm. So production was was going to be gravy or, you know, the most of production was going to be gravy. So I'm like, oh, this is, you know, this is awesome. This, this is going to work. So we opened first few days were, you know, phenomenal. And I'm like, you know, cha-ching, I'm, you know, about to look on websites and, you know, buy new cars and the whole bit, getting beer out of the, out of the brewery pretty steadily. And uh, almost immediately the, Tasting room revenue just just dropped right out. I mean, just boom. Went from eight, nine thousand a week to twelve hundred a week. I mean, we were having, hmm. you know, like a zero Wednesday. Nobody came in. Nobody came in. Was we, this we, like 2015, 2016, or what, what was the time? Uh, 2016, 2017. Yeah. Okay. So we we opened December 2016. So we were kind of rocking through the holiday season. And then, you know, once we hit, I guess it was a little later than immediately because January, February, March in Florida, you have tour season, March is baseball, you know, spring trainings all around there. So middle or end of March, things really just all of a sudden just boom, tanked, nothing. Hmm. So I'm like, all right, I don't know what happened there because Tarpon Springs is... It, it's it's north of St. Pete and kind of slightly north, but west of Tampa. So you have Tampa, St. Pete, Clearwater, Dunedin. Dunedin was eight miles away, straight shot. We were right off of alternate 19. You just drive straight for eight miles and you're in downtown Dunedin. Dunedin had, I think, five breweries at that time and they were all doing fine. And it was, you know, it, it, it's a small little community similar to Tarpon. And I couldn't wrap my head around this. So I'm, you know, getting desperate and, you know, putting out hindsight, just stupid, you know, Facebook posts. I'm like, hey, from Tampa to Dunedin is the exact same mileage as Tampa to Tarpon Springs. Come to Tarpon. Doing whatever I could to get some revenue. I mean, we tried trivia night. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Three, Three trivia nights. It was every other Monday to get started. Three of them absolutely no one showed up nobody <laughs> nobody not meaning a few people i mean it was me and the trivia person and that was it did it bounce around because so you basically you said you went from like eight to nine thousand a week to 1200 did it did you have weeks in there that like okay this, it's working that we were slammed or was it just it kind of dropped and stayed yeah, after well, that? We, weird thing is we would have really really successful events you know, we were an official Orvalde location, have an awesome day then, or you know, an awesome weekend. And you know, we had Swansea Day, 
a huge amount of business that weekend. We we just could not get people there on a daily basis and really could not get anyone from Tarpon Springs. Tarpon, is, it's such a weird community. It, it's entirely based on tourism uh, for the sponge docks. There's one little strip you know, kind of downtown with some restaurants, but it, it's it's a it's a really odd little town. And I thought, you know, incorrectly at that point that we would be enough of a draw, seeing that hell we're safe somewhere. I mean, we're known all over the world, basically. That would be enough to draw people from the area. We had no problem drawing from out of town. Yeah, uh, tourists you know, come visit. Yeah, yeah, we'd get a lot of people from you know Philadelphia because the Phillies. Uh, had their spring training not too far. And, uh, you know, they would come in and they're like, oh, man, this is great. Did you just open? <laughs> no, we opened at, uh, you know, noon and you're the only one in here. You know, we get people from overseas coming, you know, coming to Tarpon just to go to St. Somewhere. And they would be the only people in the in the tasting room. And it was, you know, it it was it was just soul crushing. That part of, of the business plan just poof, went up in smoke. We were counting on the revenue from the tasting room to also offset getting things really going on the brewery side. Well, we couldn't oh, do that. You needed, needed some time still to build yeah. up, build, uh, build back after being shut down for a minute. I'm sure yeah. when you moved, and were then, you distributing through distributors in Florida at the time? Did you go back? Did go back to uh, progressive, which was actually owned by Shelton brothers at that time. So it was still in the family right about this time. The bottom started falling out of, Shelton Brothers, so I mm-hmm. couldn't, you know, they were not taking anywhere near the amount of beer I was sending them. And uh, what I was sending them, you know, I had to I had to fight to get paid for. I understood that. I mean, they were in the same position I was in. You know, their expenses far, far exceeded their income. We were really, you know, kind of in a tight jam. Literally got to the point where couldn't, didn't have enough income to buy raw materials, to buy bottles, to get beer out the door. And it, and it kind of piggybacked on the tasting room. You know, tasting room was failing no matter what we did, tried all kinds of stuff. People that came in, I mean, absolutely loved the place because it, it was different than definitely anything in Florida, different than most, you know, in the country. Forest in Maine is similar. It's in an old house, really cool. Uh, but most breweries, especially in Florida, were, you know, the, the warehouse model, big mm-hmm. room, painted gray, some stuff on the walls and a bar. You know, ours was... It was different. It was cool and just couldn't, couldn't do it. So kept getting worse and worse, you know, having to borrow money from, you know, my sister-in-law or, you know, just to, you know, to, to stay afloat. Finally, you know, we just could not do it anymore. Also started having, you know, some health problems that, uh, you know, started, you know, probably triggered from stress from all of this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just came home one day and, and, you know, looked at Ann and I said, you know, I, this, I can't do it anymore. And you certainly don't want to do this anymore. Let's just liquidate and let's just move to the mountains, call it a day. <laughs> and uh, that's what we did. Uh, we sold the tasting room first, as is, just turnkey. Somebody could come in, open a bar, whatever they wanted. People that bought it did open, you know, a little little brewery. They, uh, they had a, you know, like a two-barrel system in the back room. We fortunately hit it at the right time because we we paid very little for the building. And even after all the money we put into it, we made a pretty good profit on selling it. You know, put a little bit 
that back into the brewery thinking, okay, now we have some money to buy some raw materials, blah, blah, blah. So initially the goal was going to be to close the tasting room and keep the production open for a little bit? Keep the production, yeah, (laughs) because, you know, needed a job initially. Had to fight tooth and nail with the bank and the SBA to separate the two and to let us retain some cash from it to to put back in, uh, you know, for raw materials and what have you. You know, after putting everything on paper, that's, you know, the the sale of the tasting room covered two-thirds of the entire loan. So they, you know, conceded and, okay, you know, normally all the funds go, you know, into the loan. So they uh, re-amortized the loan, which helped quite a bit because we went from 7000 some odd dollars a month down to sixteen or 1800 which, you know, helped quite a bit. But, you know, wasn't wasn't enough. We couldn't, we could, without uh, shelf, couldn't move the beer. Bella Vista or... Philadelphia? Yeah. Philly uh, distributor sold and that collapsed. Union, we were not not fighting. We were trying to negotiate to get out of that contract. So just to, to go with Shelton Brothers as a whole prior to that. So they weren't real enthused about buying a whole lot. Mm-hmm. So that just kind of, you know, fell apart. And I, you know, I, I just physically, emotionally was just drained at that point. Couldn't deal with it anymore. And, uh, Put the brewery and and you know Saint Somewhere is the name up for sale. I actually had a lot more interest than I thought. <laughs> Eventually sold it and uh, moved to North Carolina. Got the hell out of Dodge. So what? Do you have any looking back? Do you attribute any of those struggles to anything in particular? Though, so, well, like let's let's try to compare. Do you remember when you did the ten dollar glass refill thing? Do you feel like there were more people showing up for those events than came to the new fancy tasting room? Yeah, which was odd. So, I, yeah, so is it? I couldn't couldn't figure idea that why? out. Yeah, I not a clue. I don't know. There, there was, there were a bunch of just stupid, stupid things with the tasting room to kind of separate the two: the tasting room and the brewery. We dubbed the tasting room Brasserie Saint Somewhere, which mm-hmm. literally translates to Brewery Saint Somewhere. Spent all this money on this beautiful sign with burnished, turned lettering, you know, looked like something from the 20s, hung it out, you know, in front of the building. I saw that on your Facebook page. It looks cool. That was was really nice. Yeah. And everybody thought it was a restaurant. So I, you know, we get these groups of, you know, ladies who lunch come in and, you know, they, they're like, well, what do you mean? It's brasserie. I'm like, yeah, brasserie means, means brewery. You're not a restaurant. I'm like, no, we're, we're brewery tasting room. We're also not a nuclear power plant. And you want to go through the list of things we aren't? Yeah. And, you know, they would get, they would be mad. Like, you know, how dare you? You know, I'm I'm sorry. You know, we had wine. You know, would you like a glass of wine? What do you want? Then um, early, early on, the fire marshal comes storming in, just looking flustered. And he's like, "Uh, I got to look upstairs. I'm like, okay, (laughs) go ahead. Nothing's up there. We're not using it yet. Yeah. I was like, right. you know, so he goes storming upstairs and comes down. He's looking at everything, looks at our fire extinguishers, you know, everything's up to code and up to date. He's like, well, what are you doing upstairs? I'm like, well, you were at the table, all the meetings with me. You remember <laughs> when we discussed what we were going to do upstairs, Airbnb? 
well, uh, what's going on? I'm like, well, right now, nothing. You could see there's, you know, one room's empty. One has furnishings. Oh, uh, I'm like, well, what, what the hell? It's like, uh, 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 mind. So I came to find out that somewhere along the line, someone had called and said we were running a brothel out of the upstairs. I guess they thought brasserie. And, (laughs) and, And I'm thinking, if we were, would we have a sign out front that said that? Number one. Number two, what they, seriously? What the hell? And then I found out that they sent the fire marshal in because he could come in and inspect without a warrant. If they sent oh. someone from the police department to go upstairs, who would have had a, had a reason. Had fire some shred of evidence. Basically yeah. do what he wanted. And I'm like, yeah. really? That So I think somewhere... Tarpon Springs is a is a very tight community, and there's a lot of underground stuff. Let's <laughs> say, you know, not I don't oh. want to use the the M word, but you know, there's it ha- it has a it has a very shady past with you know cocaine smuggling and you know a lot of unsavory stuff going on. So in hindsight, I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense, but then it also makes sense that someone with influence just didn't like what we were doing and didn't didn't want us there mm-hmm. you know it's just it was just weird there there were a series of weird little events like that that when they first happened i'm like what the hell is this and then you know after i'm like eh, okay yeah yeah i know what it is so during that time there was also an that we experienced and i think everybody did this the 750 milliliter package format literally just died we tried to go 500 mils and that didn't work either so we had that as an issue. And for me, it was around the same time, like about 17, 18, 19 is when it really started to hit the fan. And then the other one was, you know, we talked off air about, you, know, you, you, you call it the floor device. I just call it shit. Um, but the idea of what a sour beer was and an acidic products value on the shelf dramatically went to the floor because of the proliferance of the Berliner Weiss, the Goza, the, the cheap sour and I know not, you know, other breweries like yours, we made mixed culture beer too. They won't admit it, but some of the other guys also struggled dramatically. Do you think either of those two things, or did you hear at the time, either of those two things were kind of contributing to the struggles you were having? Yeah, I I, I knew that was part of it, but I was thinking and hoping, you know, we were small enough that we could kind of punch through that, you know, being a little more boutique, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that, wasn't the case and the changeover in florida anyway was was not subtle or you know slow i mean it was practically overnight boom you know the birthplace of of that style and that's all anybody wanted you know i i just i wasn't going to do that i I would rather go out of business than do something i didn't even want i i never did an ipa i stuck you know stuck to my guns which you know drove us out of business but i was determined to just do what we did. I was not, you know, it's not going to be dictated to as to, to what we're supposed to do. And, you know, maybe that was out of ignorance or, you know, just being, you know, an idiot. But did you actually have the conversation where, you know, your wife or somebody else in the business was like, look, maybe we should consider this. And you said, fuck you, you're not doing this. Yeah. And initially, <laughs> uh, you know, my loan officer at the bank, you know, as we're kind of finishing everything up, he says, well, you know, if, if the Belgian, farmhouse thing isn't working out or you know you planning on you know changing changing up i said nope but by then it was you know it was beyond him 
Yeah. It was, uh, you know, up to the underwriters and everybody else. I'm like, no, I don't. And it, to this day, I, I just, I just don't get it. It's, well, I, I, I kind of do get it. I mean, we went from probably a thousand breweries when we opened in 2006 to 10,000. And at the same time, the market share went from like 3% to 7%, 8% or whatever the, you know, what what's craft beer market share these days? It's- I actually do that. I did it per brewery. And so from 15 to now, market share per brewery went from like 54 cents down to, I think it's under 20 cents per brewery now. So yeah. you know, the pie for each individual guy, literally almost a third of what it was. Yeah. But the, you know, the, the penetration into the beer market, the number of, of breweries increased almost tenfold, but the penetration into the beer market merely doubled. Well, and you know? even the consumer too, like what they, what they were looking for, just sort of vanilla it out. Like there's, you know, the, the, the edges that we, you know, guys like us, we were at the edges of the craft beer world a little bit, uh, even though that doesn't make sense to me based on the quality being better, but that's a whole nother talk show. But yeah, I mean, everyone, just, they all want the same shit. Like it's like a version of the same beer. Oh, you put Strata in yours? Fuck off. It's the same thing as the other guys. Like it's <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Same three hops in different order. And, yeah. yeah. Everyone does Magnum early and it, it, what, it, I don't know. To me, it's not as the market just didn't care. I think at one point, I know I was, and it sounds like you were too. Like we got into it with almost loving that dawn of realization. So when somebody tasted that beer for the first time, there's something different and unique that they kind of experienced that we could share that with them. That was cool and fun. And the consumer stopped wanting that. They started wanting to know what it was and they weren't going to take a risk on a $15 bottle anymore. And it's just, it's their market. They can do what they want, but it's changed. The the most aggravating part of it to me is it's unique to, uh, to, to craft beer. I mean, the wine industry is not going in that direction. You know, yeah, there's chocolate wine. There's, you know, there's some bullshit, you know, peach vanilla wine, but that's, and, and, and same with bourbon and scotch, you know, there's, you know, apple crown Royal, whatever, you know, that all of that stuff is still on the fringe. Mm-hmm. No one is waiting in line for the next, uh, you know, to, to stupid vodka release. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. They're just not where, for whatever reason, the, the craft, well, it's not even craft beer anymore. Just the, the, the beer consumer is not concerned about quality of ingredients, quality of, of, you know, the make the, they, I, I don't know what they're looking for. It, it's insane. Diabetes. I think that's what they're looking for. That just as yeah. long as there's enough sugar in it, they don't care. Yeah. But I, I know some, some of them that are into all that, but yet, they're still going crazy over a two hundred and fifty dollar bottle of bourbon. I mean, how does that work? How do you how do you be in both camps? Yeah, you don't you don't want a brownie in your bourbon, like yeah, yeah. you I mean, you understand it. I think what it boils down to you know, a lot of ways is it's just whatever's hypey and new and Instagrammable. Like it at the end of the day, I think a lot of those people don't appreciate the two hundred fifty dollar bottle of bourbon the way that it they couldn't really. Many of them, and maybe not your friend, they couldn't intelligently talk about the nuances and differences of that versus a $30 bottle of Buffalo Trace or whatever. But the fact that it's hard to get, it's expensive, it's whatever. They're like, and, and that's where these beers are. So the fact that I waited in line and I got it, I put it on Instagram or I shared it with a friend, I'm cool for having it, even though I don't necessarily appreciate it or love it. But yeah, that goes a long way. Yeah. And the. <laughs> 
especially love seeing, uh, you know, Instagram, especially somebody will post a picture of, you know, some lactose marshmallow fruited abomination that's literally mud looking, just gray mm. in the glass. I mean, gray, no head. It looks like somebody took old bananas, put them in a blender, poured them in the glass. And then the remarks under that are like, that looks amazing. I'm like, compared to what? How does that it look would, amazing? It looks like, you know, it, uh, I, I don't get it. Do you drink maple syrup this morning and this looks amazing compared yeah. to that? Yeah. Well, I could shit on craft beer all day and I think that we should, but let's take a quick break first. And when we come back, I first want to hear a little bit about kind of like how you tore it down and got rid of all the pieces and what that aftermath looks like. And then I think I think we can agree to pull shit on into or on uh, untapped together if you don't mind doing that when we get back. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a whole show. All right, I'll be right back. All right, welcome back. Last segment again. Uh, I really, first of all, I want to thank you for sharing all this. Obviously, you know, I went through it. It's extremely emotional, and, and I think that's part of why people listen. But at the same time, it's not always easy to do. And, and I've had people tell me you no know, many times to be on the show for that reason. So I appreciate you being open to telling us what what happened for you and how it went down. So sure. We you talked a little bit about obviously you sold the tasting room. Um, you, you were able to make back some of the loss there, and then. Um, you sold the essentially the IP, the name, assets, and whatever was there, and then skated off into the sunset, which sounds beautiful. But I gotta ask, like, did you truly skate off into the sunset? No debt whatsoever. You closed it all out. Did you still have some residual bullshit you had to deal with, or stuff that came out of the woodworks later? Uh, how'd that work? No, actually, for you know, once in my life, it, it transitioned pretty smoothly, and to this day, I'm still baffled. I'm, I'm waiting for that phone call to, you know, hey, you forgot to, you know, sign this, and now you owe us three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, we were we the biggest piece of advice I currently give anyone that that wants to open a brewery is own the building, mm-hmm. buy the building, be your own landlord do whatever it takes to do that because you're in control. And if everything, well, let's say when everything goes to shit, you've got something to fall back on. I mean, you've, you know, you've, you've got, you've got some ownership, you've got some equity, you know, hopefully, you know, now if you don't have equity, then, you know, you did something (laughs) extremely bad. Yeah, or overpaid or whatever, but yeah. And that's one argument I've had. Unfortunately, I've had it online, which is not the best place to have it too, but, when the brewery's been open for four or five years and they're like, no, we're extremely profitable and they're leasing a high traffic retail spot in, you know, a district downtown or whatever. Until you get to that second five-year renewal and it goes to fair market value and the landlord looks at it and says, Hey, <laughs> I think you're, it's worth double. Yeah, yeah. You're raking in the money. You can afford it. Yeah. And so I, I think that's a big piece of it that people forget that leasing, we all know it sucks because you, you know, you don't own the building, but if you can get into it, I would say the only other issue you run into is with, you know, SBA specifically, they, they believe a personal guarantee means like the, the rights to any like semen revenue you might have in the future or anything. They want everything, but were you able to close that loan out completely or did you still have the personal guarantee hanging out there with the, the guys you sold it to? No, no, it's, uh, it's done and over. Yeah. The, the, the biggest chunk came from, um, you know, the, the tasting room, I, I guess the, the biggest chunk of, of profit you know we we sold it at you know at the right time well of course if we sold it you know now we'd make you know quite a bit more but it uh yeah it worked out and we you know 
we built in, you know, all the fixtures. It, it was, you know, it was a turnkey bar. All some somebody needed was a, a license. It was ready to go. Well, so you you did this longer than I did. Um, I guess when did you finally sell? Like eighteen, nineteen, or what was? When did you walk away? It, hey, when the hell was it? I think we, yeah, beginning of beginning of twenty nineteen, and right. then you know it was another year to you know to sell our house in, in Florida and move. Which is probably a good time to sell your house too. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, you did it much longer than me, and obviously, you know, it was an important part. I would say you were more successful than me, or at least had more fun at it than I did being able to distribute more places. What What was that like? Like walking out of the building for the last time, and that chapter of your life was over. Do you remember? Uh, I had a really hard time with uh, closing the tasting room, really, because well, that was that was a vision I had in my head since you know since prior to the beginning. I mean that you know every every guy wants to you know own his own little bar, and it was exactly you know I mean there was no compromise. It was exactly what I wanted, exactly the way I wanted it. Uh, it was absolutely perfect, you know, in my mind. And the fact that uh, nobody else saw that, you know, customer wise, you know, it, it was it was heartbreaking. I mean, I did I had a I still have a hard time with that selling. You know the the brewery and and Saint somewhere was a little easier only because by the time that came around I was just pissed off and ready to get get the fuck out <laughs> and, and I'm like you know screw this fuck this industry screw it all you know you can have it I'm out of here I definitely had that too the the, the long days was part of it where you know, you're still going in and making your art and and doing you know, great beers. And, and admittedly, I haven't had a chance, I don't believe to try any of yours, but you guys were definitely one that I knew of and then, you know, an inspiration for what I did. Obviously I did mixed culture beers, but just when at the end, especially when you know, you're not making money, but you're still going in and working just as hard. That was hard for me. You just get pissed. You're just like, if I was doing, if I was working this hard at a regular job, I'd be getting a paycheck and go eat lunch and be able to chill out. But <laughs> I'm just I'm yeah. stressed out. I can't fucking sleep. Like, uh, it was, it was tough. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, that was an, an extremely stressful period of, of my life. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, my wife, Anne's, you know, she took care of all the books, you know, she did all the hard part. I just, you know, did the fun part and got the glory. And, you know, what, to me, what makes it even harder is, you know, this is going to sound, you know, just arrogant, but I mean, we, we paved the way for most every other mixed culture brewery in in the country, except for for Jolly Pumpkin. But and we haven't brought it know, up. But the Milk the Funk Wikipedia, there's a whole bunch of like educational stuff on there, and you're being referenced over and over. Like like there's yeah, definitely I mean, you contributed to the industry in a big way for sure. Yeah, and uh, and you know to this day, uh, there's you know the Saint Somewhere brand and and the you know the 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 Bob Sylvester brand carries a lot of weight in other countries. Mm. I mean, I, I just had a, a really great trip uh, to Belgium end of August, beginning of September. And uh, it was kind of, you know, an ego boost for me and, uh, you know, kind of reassuring that I, I really didn't waste 15 or 16 years of my life, you know, going into a, you know, bar in, in Bruges and, you know, somebody coming up to me and saying, hey, aren't you Bob from St. Somewhere? And I'm like, yeah. They recognize <laughs> your face? Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, just, 
you know, amazes me. And then, you know, being able to brew with, with, uh, some of the breweries and, and, you know, just stop in a brewery that I've always been interested in. And instead of having a beer or two, end up there four or five hours, you know, hanging out with the owner, them bringing out Dadala, one of my favorite breweries in the world. Really had, had not been there until this trip and, you know, met Chris, the, the owner brewer once or twice, but never, you know, never really had a conversation. And uh, I went there with uh, my buddy, uh, Chris Cates from Little Animals Brewing in Tennessee and my other buddy Blake. So it's just three of us. We get there two o'clock on a Sunday Sunday afternoon right as they open. Yeah. Uh, the owner, Chris, he spent, I don't know, better part of the afternoon with us, cracking really? open bottles and just talking about the industry and where it's been and, you know, what's happening in the U.S. And that, that wouldn't have happened if I didn't have an association with St. Somewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's it's things like that that you know make me realize that it was a financial mess, but maybe maybe it was somewhat worthwhile. Yeah, well, it sounds like you came out of it fairly unscathed, at least on that side. But that was never the point, right? You, you wanted to open it up to make money, <laughs> not break yeah. even. Yeah, um, yeah. I never had any grandeurs of being rich, but paying the bills would would have been good. So, like right after I sold, I definitely had an issue where I was mad at beer overall. Like I had trouble just even. I kind of gave up drinking beer for months and then um, switched more to bourbon in a sense, but just recently have been able to kind of come back to it. And obviously you, you sold a couple of years before I did. I'm just curious how that affected you. Did, did you have a period where you're just mad at beer overall or not? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mad at the industry, the consumers as a whole. I think um, we're still mad at the consumers, but in, maybe not the industry. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the industry itself, just seeing, you know, when I got into it, all of my peers got into it because they wanted to brew beer that no one else was brewing. You know, they wanted to brew what they liked because they couldn't buy it. Now it's 180 degrees and breweries are opening because they want to sell beer that the other guys making a ton of money with, even though they don't respect the style. I don't, you know, I don't, I've yet to speak to a brewer in the industry that would say, yeah, man, I'm really proud of my marshmallow pecan extract, yuzu, dragon fruit, IPA. None of them are. And I think that's where uh, the whole lager pushback thing is happening. And uh, that's fine. Make a lager or two. But how do you go from where we were two years ago to now everybody's doing nothing but lagers? I mean, the, the industry is now focused on the style of beer that the industry was actually built against, you know? Right. <laughs> the, the light right, lager. Craft beer what? came about because we were tired of drinking lager. You know, that's all there, all there was. And now we're getting to the point where that's all there's going to be. You know, oh, and those are the most touted beers. Oh, you know, I'm opening a brewery and we're only going to do lagers. Okay, great. And <laughs> that's fine. Well, that, that business model is not sustainable. And most of these people who have built the brewery and the debt that they're sitting on, the, the ability to turn that product with that low margin into profitability, it's just not going to happen. So I think that's part of the problem with a lot of the craft industry is that they aren't using abacuses, abacai, to actually count <laughs> the number. 
because yeah, there's, there's no reality where that makes any financial sense. Uh, I, I enjoy drinking lagers also. So I am not at all saying that I, I don't like that, but I think they're in deep shit once that transition were to really take over. Yeah. Something's, you know, you know, I equate the, the, the craft beer industry to the music industry. You know, there's always some breakthrough that completely changes the landscape. And I mm-hmm. think, uh, now we're, uh, you know, we're, we're waiting for, uh, you know, either either punk rock or uh, you know, or grunge to hit you know the craft beer industry, and everybody's going to go back to Cascade Pale Ales or you know something. There's going to be some breakdown where it just it it just it's going to go back to its roots. I'm hoping anyway. Well, as as such an important person in the industry, I'm not going to let you off the hook without a uh, prediction. So, what do you think it's going to be, Bob Sylvester? What what is the next innovation in craft beer? <laughs> I, I will admit the last innovation, you know, quote innovation was probably the the New England IPA. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an actual innovation that involves brewing process, ingredients, water chemistry. That you know, that's an innovation. Really pisses me off to see some you know article and and they call uh, uh, again a, a marshmallow cherry goza an innovation. Well, it's mm-hmm. not an innovation. That's just dumping shit into a beer. I, I think that the next trend, which actually started a year or two ago, finally getting a lot of traction and see just a ton of it right now, are uh, beer wine hybrids. Again, it's still kind of niche, but then so is uh, you know Nippa and Florida Vice. But I specialized in beer wine hybrids as early as like fourteen, and didn't work for me. But <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> I, I think. you know. Maybe it's just the, you know, the, the circles I'm involved in, but man, it's, everybody seems to be going that direction. I would agree. The New England IPA was like the last kind of real innovation. And I did not realize that the alchemist was making that in like the mid aught, like it kind of got famous in 08, but they were making it before that. So it's been a long damn time since we've had an innovation in craft beer. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what, you know, it's a tragedy, but I think what kind of launched the alchemist into the stratosphere was was after the flood that that got a lot of press and people were like well you know i've never heard of this beer or never heard of they brew one beer they brew two beers you know that that kind of spread the word well one question i like to ask everybody i'm gonna have to ask you so there's we talked earlier there's ten thousand breweries in the united states we get like 500 to a thousand to close every year but they still get replaced by more than that but in your opinion how many breweries is too many I think we passed that probably 3,000 breweries ago. And the market's showing that. Well, at about the 7,000 point is when I think breweries started to realize that, uh, oh, you know, we, <laughs> we're not cutting and making beer. So, you know, seltzers came on the scene. Uh, there's the, the new, uh, you know, non-alcohol beer thing going, which I'm kind of on the fence with that. And uh, yeah, at about that point, breweries stopped being able to make it by making beer yeah and, and it kind of looks like the model broke down yeah uh and i think because the you know the market about then was saturated let's face it there are only x amount of of beer drinkers i mean that you know that number will grow a little bit every year just by exposure and by population growth but not everybody's going to drink beer and who owned half of saint somewhere doesn't like beer she doesn't <laughs> drink beer she might we go out somewhere She'll have like a Lindemann's Frambois, which is close to beer, 
but there are people that just are not going to drink beer. She'll, you know, she'll drink a cider or something else, but not beer. Yeah. Well, the, the graphs show, at least over the preceding like three years, that craft beer market share versus wine and spirits is actually down. So apparently the United States is drinking less beer today than it was five years ago. Well, if you look at the Boston Beer Company, they're uh, making a whole lot more money on their uh, their cider and seltzers than they are in the beer. Yeah, I think it was their last earnings call. They just sort of buried the fact that beer is less than 20% of their portfolio. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. And that's with Dogfish. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Dogfish had uh, opened a uh, brewery and tasting room in Miami, and uh, within a year, it's gonna it's closing. Yeah, sign of the times. But so from your perspective, why do you think it's so hard to be profitable in this industry? Too many breweries, for one. You know, there's... I think the destination brewery is is no longer. There's this misconception that local is better, where you know it could be, but not always. I mean, I've been to a whole lot of really crappy breweries in my day. You remember the worst beer you ever tried? <laughs> um, yes, it was. A, <laughs> it, it was a a menthol porter, not a mint porter, but menthol. Ooh. Which was, I mean, it was, yeah, uh, not drinkable, really bad. And why would it be? Why would somebody think that that's a fit? That makes no sense. Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know if they were going after the menthol cigarette smokers or, or what they were doing. But yeah, yeah, that was just, just bad. Well, that was a brewery that was local to somewhere. So yeah, local can eat shit. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've seen too many, oh, you know, we just launched our Pilsner and it, you know, you, you can't see through the glass. I'm like, well, is that a Zwickle? What what are you trying to yeah. and 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 then people laud them for it? Oh man, that that looks amazing. That you know, I can't wait to try it. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't want to try it. I, I can tell you what it tastes like just by looking at the picture. And there was a brewery in Austin that released a Pilsner had like 15, maybe 14, and they didn't have glycol. So uh and I don't think they have bright <laughs> tanks either. So I think they were can conditioned. So they decided to use the term bohemian pilsner, which I feel translates to just pilsner not made correctly. Um, but I've seen other bohemian pilsners, the same thing. It's just like, oh, we fucked something up. It's bohemian. I don't know. Like, yeah. <laughs> Farmhouse. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So one question I ask everybody, I got to ask you, how has working in this industry affected your relationship to alcohol? So there were some dark <laughs> times for me where I was at least staring over the edge of potential alcoholism by uh, using beer for the wrong reasons. But uh, anyway, I just kind of ask everybody that question, how it's affected it. Yeah. I definitely look at it differently now that I've kind of come out the other side. It's, it's just so easy to, you know, fall down that rabbit hole because you're, you're at work, you know, especially when I was doing the Thursday and Friday night thing, you know, also since we weren't licensed for that, we were giving away the beer um, you know, I'd, I'd encourage bottle shares on, on paper. It was, you know, from six to nine, but a <laughs> lot of nights we were there till, you know, one, two in the morning and then coming back and doing the same thing, you know, all the next day. And then you beer fest out of town, beer fest, you're there three, four days. And, you know, that's everybody's excuse to party as hard as they can for those three and four days. And then you come back to work and the other cycle starts all over again. And, you know, you show up at somebody's brewery and they want to pour you every beer they have. And it, it's, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very real concern. 
kind of mid-career, I made it a point not to have beer in the house at all. I wouldn't bring really? beer home. I wouldn't buy any beer for the fridge. I'm like, I, I drink enough, need some sort of oasis that, you know, sort of kind of worked. You know, there are many times I drove when I definitely should not have driven. <laughs> Fortunately, never got a DUI, but I know a lot of friends that did that didn't do anything that I wasn't doing. So it was just a matter of time and place. Well, there's definitely a lot of that. Question. You and I talked off the air before about this. And so I'm, I, I'm very curious to hear what you're about to tell me. If you could go back, would you do it all again? And then secondly, are you going to do it again, Bob? <laughs> you know what? It, even after all the bullshit and hardship, would I do it again? <laughs> yeah, most likely. You know, I, I'd do it differently, obviously. But I, you know, I really don't have many regrets other than opening the the tasting room in, in Tarpon Springs when I could have easily done it in Tampa and, you know, would have been fine. On the other hand, if I did and we were mildly successful or even, you know, just paying the bills, I'd still be there rather than hanging out in the mountains. Uh, am I going to do it again? No, absolutely not. I'm really enjoying just doing the fun stuff, you know, the, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm still the St. Somewhere guy, you know, this last collaboration with, with De La Sin, um, I was asking them to, to do it under the somewhere else beer project, which is kind of my, my new thing. I'm not brewing anything, but it's, you know, collaborations, travel, beer stuff without, you know, without being a brewery. They're they're putting it out there as kind of both St. Somewhere Brewing and somewhere else beer project, and I'm you know I'm fine with that. At this point in the game, I, I physically you know can't do it again. I don't want to. I've been there, done that for a number of years. You know, it was really fun, but that was I'm 61. I'm kind of <laughs> over the hill to get in the beer business, unless it's contract brewing or something like that. That you know that's I see no joy in that. Yeah, schlepping kegs and 50 pound grain bags is not uh not fun for me either but i can't imagine some point to get old yeah so do you have a website like a way people can find the somewhere else brewing project don't have a website just because i'm i'm not that invested <laughs> you know i do have you know instagram page uh somewhere else beer project and uh facebook page same thing somewhere else beer project saint somewhere is still up everywhere only because I I like to I want to keep all the all the pictures you know going back to mm-hmm. just about day one and uh, you know to try to download those you know from Facebook is you know beyond my pay grade so all you know all that's still still active think somewhere kind of kind of fell apart the guys I sold the company to and the building were going to pick up the mantle and continue Saint somewhere and you know then you know pandemic number of things happened and uh it it just kind of fell apart now it's just a real estate holding let's say but there is uh there is some <laughs> little glimmer of hope that uh someone who's actually pretty big and, and well known in the industry that has always had an interest in saint somewhere is talking about getting a hold of it from the current owners and revamping it and you know bringing me in as 
you know, the guy and consultant and that kind of thing. And I, you know, I'd, I'd be in it that avenue rather than ownership. You know, just give me something to do. I'll show up at beer festivals and, you know, do the Bob thing, do all the fun <laughs> stuff. You do all the hard work. You, 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 you invest your money. I just right. want to show up and have fun. You deal with the shortfalls if it happens. Well, just let me come in and have some fun and smile. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good place to wrap up. One thing I would always like to ask is what is some overarching pieces of advice that you can give to someone considering opening a brewery? Right now? Don't. I would agree. Yeah, I'm glad just, someone agrees with me. Just, just just don't do it. I mean, I, you know, it, it, jokingly, I looked up the number of Burger Kings and the number of McDonald's in the country. <laughs> and there are now almost 3,000 more breweries in the U.S. than Burger Kings and only like 25 or 3,000 less breweries than McDonald's. Yeah, that, that, that makes no sense whatsoever. Absolutely insane. Considering yeah. that anybody can eat a McDonald's from a, a, a toddler to somebody in their 90s or older, not the same demographic as, as craft beer. Yeah, just just don't open a brewery, do something else. You know, work in a brewery uh, at best. You know, it it it's kind of like a calling, I guess. You know, I I kind of felt it. And there's just this need. You know, oh, I've got to brew beer. Be a homebrew. You know, homebrew. Yeah, Don't there's a lot brew. of other ways to scratch the itch. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I absolutely appreciate everything you you share with us. Um, you know, my again, my interviews are a couple hours long, so not for the faint of heart, but you stuck in there and. And I care, <laughs> I feel like I could ask interview for another couple of hours and still get more nuggets of, of what went down and what we can learn from it. But uh, I really appreciate it. And yeah. I hope everyone goes to find your beer. And when the collab comes to the United States, they buy it all up. And anything else you've got, feel free to share it to me. I'll put it on my social media too as you get more of those collabs. Uh, happy to share. All right. Absolutely. This is fun. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed it and have a good rest of your day. All right. You too. Thanks for hanging in, dudes and dudettes. I truly hope this podcast adds value to your life as much as to your career. I hope it's opened your eyes, your heart, and even your mind. I hope you're readied and steadied for the rocky road that lies ahead of you. By now you know you're going to need some salt in your margarita if you hope to have enough grit to finish the round. So here's the double salting the rim of life, motherfuckers. I mentioned earlier the book I wrote in 2019 and revised the hell out of 2020. It is 55,000 words available on Amazon and a fantastic way to support the show. You can also share your favorite episode with friends and foes. That shit helps way more than you might know. Plus, every purchase you make from one of my sponsors directly helps keep me in business. And if you're feeling really squirrely, there's a link in the show notes for how to support the show with a direct donation. But most of all, I appreciate your support by coming back, learning something valuable, and spreading the message to the rest of the world. You are part of the craft beer revolution that will keep the business part strong enough to keep the fermentation part flowing. And I, for one, love the absolute fuck out of each of you. So thanks for being a listener, and I look forward to meeting you all one day. Free play. Media. Media.